brand has gone through a lot of transformation, a lot of changes has happened. And uh, the, the Quran was canonized or standardized only for the world in 1985. That is only three years before I was born. So it's only three years old to me. So, and this Quran was a Hafs Quran. This Hafs Quran was something which was conceived in the 10th century uh, and it is a different version. And the story goes back then to Cairo in 1924 when uh, the, what happened the whole islamic university uh, used to have the question on the islamic theology, theology and the stuff like that and uh, when people used to have different answer to the question because there were different versions of quran right so then they say that we need to make a quran standard so they choose a hafs quran and in 1924 it was adapted in the egypt and the same hafs was later adopted for the world so we have multiple version of quran written by multiple people and that the question what you are pointing to it really uh, creates serious problem and it really raises a concern that the text which itself is not standardized and if you ask a islamic scholar that if you give, if i give you a blank paper which version of quran will you write he will not be able to answer he will either dodge it or he will either you know just bluff it around that you don't know the arabic so uh, that will happen but no one on the earth can write a standard version of quran for you uh, there are theories that uh, maybe that uh, quran is uh, uh, just not at all correct everything is fictional there and actual theory should be that it's a tangled history and uh, a lot of things which have been entangled it's like a knot and you have to just unknot it and just connect the dots in a right way and just get the line correct and then you will exactly get how islam evolved so it's not the rejection of the quran but it's about understanding the quran from the perspective the way it was written though it's very challenging but we can definitely try out to do something yeah so this was said by al-kindi he was a 9th century uh, philosopher scholar he was a christian by faith as i said and he was housed in the house of the wisdom in baghdad under the abbasids so so a christian was uh, there in the house of uh, of wisdom and under the uh, one of the caliphate and he was talking about all this problem so m- moving on to the thing last we had discussed about uh, that uh, what were the fallacies in the islam is uh, a standard narrative of the islam and why actually we need to really re look into the whole idea that uh, you know how islam happened and the things like that so then we further when we discovered when we uh, further explored into the ideas we came to know that perhaps uh, it was a brawl among the christians which had led to uh, the creation of a new faith and something like that might have just erupted but there is lot more than that so i i will just take you more through and i think and the best part is that what i am referring here is not uh, quran largely nor i am referring to the hadith but i am rather preferring to the primary sources which are still there in record and which we exactly know that when they were written because you know uh, quran and hadith as i have explained earlier also can be something uh, on which you can raise a question upon because you don't know the exact dates we don't have the exact dating we don't know the authors of it who exactly wrote the stuff like hadith also has got a lot of problems so that's why i am referring so one of the thing that uh, 
always comes to, i have been referring to bishop sebius uh, the testimonies quite often and uh, here again i start off with bishop sebius saying and bishop sebius was someone who was uh, the, living in the 7th century and he has documented extensively about islam so when you ask people that what happened to islam and perhaps there is no islam then they will come up with these sources they will talk about bishop sebius and everyone else and then further when you dwell to look into that what these guys are saying it's astonishing because then what it does is that it not only proves that yes islam was there there was perhaps some muhammad but it just changes the narrative the narrative is not exactly the way it was so here what we see is that uh, and uh, the the there's a very notion of uh, an ignorant origin of quran does not withstand actually a, a enough of scrutiny uh, this is what i must admit and uh, sebus bishop of the bagatas wrote in 6 uh, 660s that muhammad was not only an expert in torah but that he was in his mission to conquer the promised land a redeemer of the canaan and jerusalem as i say so you know, who is a redeemer of jerusalem and canaan definitely the prophet one he is definitely a jew, uh, the jew prophet or, or someone who is going to redeem the land so here uh, i have just put across the quote which will uh, make the, the things very clear that if one wants to read it uh, he will get the hang of it also to just have just put it i'm not going to read it across but i'm just giving a crack of it that this is what sebius was trying to mean and um, this uh, this whole notion of redeemer uh, role might be a bit alluded in the quran itself and uh, when jesus uh, son of mary said children of israel i am indeed the messenger of god of you confirming the torah that is before me and giving good tidings of messenger who shall come after me whose name shall be ahmad this is coming from quran 61.6 now the term is ahmad now if the two mysteries of the quran's ahmad and al-mahdi in the 12th shism were carelessly combined if we combine very carelessly one would conclude that the you know one would get into the horror of linguistics because and jump to the conclusion that a redeemer had indeed been expected this is a conclusion which one might say reading this across and perhaps uh, i'm sure that many people know about the ahmadiyya sect wherein there is mention of this ahmad and uh, and they say that uh, the person who started the ahmadiyya sect was this guy who is the promised one now one could speculate that ahmad uh, not muhammad here because it's written ahmad has a similar meaning as masiha or the christ which is only marginally different from the prophecy in the book of john where another paraclesletos should follow the paraclesletos jesus the paraclesletos is no one else but one who helps a messenger someone who is like a helper not exactly the uh, somewhat so and prophet muhammad has been always called the seal of the prophet that he is the final one so now the hebrew word masiha means the anointed one of the lord and that is uh, this is the word rendered in uh, actually in greek uh, as christos that is where from perhaps the idea of the christ also came in in old testament prophetic writing it is used for the expected uh, deliverer of the jewish nation hence turning the perspective to almost any view ahmad likely rests on a judeo christian foundation 
and is supposed to be an anointed redeemer of israel a function that may bear names with the same meaning so here what sabuz is trying to say and also what quran is meaning to say what i read across uh, from 61.6 it's about that anointed person who is just uh, supposed to come yeah so and i have been calling this thing history is jumbled yeah and cons- consistent with the sebus notion that the ideas from the edisa and constitutor hand over a verse in the cow the cow is a, a chapter of the quran indicates that the power over the religion that had been transferred from the family tree of isaac to the ishmaelites so the transfer happened from isaac to the ishmaelites and this is what quran 2.134 is existing so isaac uh, isaac's power had passed away and of abraham's sons only one in the next in the line his uh, first born that is ishmael while we it's very tough to know that what exactly sebus was trying to say or what was his agenda an analysis of subtle differences between the biblical story of joseph and one in the quran also unmask a uh, uh, biblical experts rather than some illiterate people that happened to have chanced upon the bible so a tradition attributes the first caliph abu bakr to the tribe of joseph that is the isaac's grandson this is very interesting the importance of this caliph is that he is the first outside of muhammad's family to accept islam while traditions remain in admissible the connection between joseph and uh, abu bakr is just one of those pieces of the majestic puzzle and uh, that are preferably ignored completely without uh, uh, convincing rational we don't have any rational we just can't uh, make that relation work out however not exploring this pandora box is quite uncomfortable though the defies the rationality and proper historical methodologies but we need to really look upon it that what probably would have been the notion that this idea of relation came in it also leaves actually muslims and the followers of other orthodoxies or say the other abrahamic faith in the slumber of happy innocence and helps lighting the fuses of some of their more explosive jilots on a march toward yet another holocaust that can hopefully be avoided by constructing an insight into the mechanism judaically so if we really understand it so a lot can be avoided and a lot of things will be much eased out so again i am saying i have been naming this uh, these thing history is jumbled so again i am taking the quote of the coptic uh, apocalypse of sidoshnite who wrote down uh, an after the fact prophecy about the incursion of the ishmaelites so this is what he is saying so what exactly is this prophecy speaking about this prophecy is not only speaking about the ishmaelite goal to rebuild the holy temple of jerusalem but also about their partners the son of isau isau was also a son of the ram so here this is particularly interesting clue to the origin of the quraish it really gives you the hints for the quraish who exactly with the quraish because they shifted their lineage from the first biblical jacob to the brother isau so this lineage was actually shifted bible is saying something else and here you find something else so both jacob and isau were the son of isaac isaac was the son of abraham significance is actually a symbolic disguise if i have to say isau had been betrayed by jacob please note it isau had been betrayed by uh, jacob of his birthright to inheritance of the israel this is what is said 
and he had also married ishmael's daughter the concentration of the masaic hopes around this time is connected to the prophecies of the 77s in the book of daniel also where an anointed one was expected to arise as a ruler the jews at the time were hopeful that the meaning of uh, the masiha 490 uh yes after the third jewish roman war this is a prophecy so 490 years after the third uh, jewish roman war so third roman jewish war happened 135 ad if you add 492 uh, 492 it you will get the year 625 ad so the renaming of muhammad that is man of delights and the birth of the prototype quran needs also to be seen in the context of anticipation of the redemption of israel and the arrival of the new king of the jews so this is very important you have to see this arrival of the word muhammad the man of delights and the prototype quran which is existing there i am calling it prototype because a lot happened after that it needs to be seen in the context of the earlier prophecies where in 625 a prophet is set to come and the, someone who who is going to be redeemer so mo- moving on to the and i had initially quoted about uh, uh, alkindi and this is what it is the he wrote a apology of uh, it's called apology kalkindi written at the court of al mamum in circa ah this islamic calendar 215 and he says show me a proof or sign of a wonderful work done by your master muhammad to certify his mission and to prove what he did in slaughter and refine was like the other by divine command the result of all of this is patent to you would have read the scriptures and see how in your book histories are all jumbled together intermingled and evidence that many different hands have been at work therein caused the discrepancies adding to the cutting of whatever they like or dislike are such now the conditions of the revelations sent down from the heaven so this man sitting in the house of wisdom of baghdad in the 9th century in the, under the abbasids was questioning the quran and he was very apprehensive about alkindi was of the opinion that quran had been pieced together of different histories by number of authors it would have been helpful if those polemics like uh, polemics of the people who were actually the religious critics and uh, of the other religion included a discourse about some of the quran's content providing uh, uh, prosperity with the clues about what those discrepancies included but nothing happened at the least given the aryan and the jewish subtext uh, in the quran there seems to be a room for interpretation and alternative scenarios so that's what exactly we are doing that we have got uh, the aryan and jewish subtext in the quran which actually go hand in hand with what the actually the christians and the syrians um, the people the jewish people are talking so that's why we are looking at it however uh, kindi has given us a clue over here that clue is what i spoke in, in uh, at the beginning that quran is a jumble of histories rather than a plain fabrications hence the task would be a path not followed here to untangle the gordian knot rather than to discard it so this man had given us a clue and we are i'm just trying to work on the same clue so the kaaba in makka which stood at least a century before prophet muhammad as per the traditional view was believed to having housed christian memorabilia indeed the quran itself describes makka as trinitarian actually 
Quran does speak about Mukkah's Trinitarian. There is a thought that whether it was pagan or something, but uh, it, it does talk about the Trinitarian idea as well. And this is the Surah 37.1492151, which is speaking about that. So what is happening here is that it's uh, that God should have begotten a son is a heart of the long-lasting conflict between the Byzantine Orthodoxy and Arianism. We uh, we uh, saw it in the last talk. According to the John of Damascus, Orthodoxy and the Sabians at the time seem to have uh, venerated saints as gods. Also explaining the nature of what was, uh, I have just put it across here. The presence of a female goddess, Uzza, complicates the matter only for those I do not grasp the mother role in Makkah and Ezra. Like, you know, no one will talk about Uzza in the Islamic narrative, but it gives you a lot of clues. I will elaborate on it further. In Quran, Prophet Muhammad is believed to be portrayed as one of the messengers of God. But that's not always the case. And that's happening together with Jesus Christ, who is labeled as son of Mary. The letters, that is the uh, Christ designation, is a doctrinal classification for Aryan Christianity. Uh, we spoke about it in the last time, where Mary is not the mother of a God because Jesus is not the son of the God. So that's the doctrine of uh, the Aryans. The Quran also singles Christians as particularly receptive to the new scripture. So as I said last time also, that Quran is something uh, which is uh, always heard by Know, people who know the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Quran 5.25 says that thou wilt surely will find the most hostile of men and the believers are the Jews and the idolaters. And thou wilt surely find the nearest of them in love to the believers and those who say we are Christians. That's because of some of them are priests and the monks and they wax not proud. And when they hear what has been Send down to the messenger, thou seest that their eyes overflow with the tears because of the true of uh, recognize. So, idolaters here are the reference to the Byzantine Orthodoxy. And the Christian, which is referred to, is likely to the East Syrian Christians. I had uh, explained this uh, completely in the last talk that how the issue of the Lachmid and the Ghasnid arose in and the Persian was supporting the Lakhmets and the Byzantines were supporting the Ghaznets and all those things. So now, according to the tradition, when Prophet Muhammad entered the Kaaba, he was not cleaning out the pagan idols, but uh, as per the tradition, but the Trinitarian Christian images of Abraham, Mary, and the symbol of Holy Spirit in the baptism of Jesus, a dove and the others. This is what he actually had cleared off. Moving further. Now, Bukhari gives us a very interesting clue. He says that the Prophet entered the Kaaba and found it in pictures of Prophet Abraham and Mary. On that, he said, what is the matter with them? That is the Quraysh. They have already heard that angels do not enter a house in which, their pictures, in which there are pictures. Yet this is the picture of Abraham. And why is it depicted as practicing divination by arrows. I will tell you what this is. So this is uh, a very inadmissible tradition is a conflict to the idea of uh, uh, paganism and a text of um, what is in the brackets like Quraysh and the prophet. 
hint at the later editions that seem to attempt clarifications of the passages that are today assumed to refer to the Quraysh. I said that Quraysh idea was also cooked up completely. So rather than an anti-pagan campaign, one might read a Judaic sweep against idols into the story, foreshadowing the secretarian continuum with which the iconoclast controversy of the following century. And here the, the word which we use, divination by arrows, is uh, indeed the Judaic tradition in the context of Israel's redemption and the practice would possibly continue elsewhere for some time. So it's um, actually there. It was, uh, it was a very Judaic tradition in terms of a redeemer. So even Christians were having this belief of a redeemer prior to. So again, uh, this uh, very important uh, doctrine of Jacobi uh, comes around, around 640 AD. And I say that's a problematic source because uh, he says that uh, uses the term Saracen and that creates a lot of confusion. A false prophet has appeared among the Saracens, right? The, the term is false prophet. They say that the prophet has appeared coming with the Saracens and is proclaiming the advent of anointed one who is to come. Anointed one, as I said, that this is completely based on the Jewish tradition that the one who will be the redeemer. And there was a prophecy, right? which was supposed to happen after 490 years from uh, 135 AD uh, from the Jew Jewish Roman war. So that, that's, uh, that's where it's continuing. And uh, the proclaiming of the advent of uh, anointed one who is to come. So I, Abraham, made inquiries and was told by those who had come, met him. There is no truth to be found in the so-called prophet, only bloodshed. For he says he has the keys of paradise, which is incredible. So many people would uh, juxtapose that, you know, this, hey, we have find a prophet Muhammad, but necessarily not because Muhammad had different meanings and uh, this, uh, the, also the text changed a lot with the time. So the text is actually referring to the anointed one, which is about to come, which is reference to either to the second coming of Jesus before the end of the days or the appearance of a Messiah in the case of a parasite. Why the text fails to identify Muhammad? I definitely say that this text is failing to identify Muhammad. The primary sources seems to be an agreement that a Judaic sects were facing the end of the time and the expected outcome is the same in both the cases, the redemption of Israel. So in all the cases, it was about the redemption of Israel. Without going into the complication of different Saracen groups and multiple contemporary prophets alongside Muhammad and which parts of the Quran may have existed at the time, False prophet appearing with these tribes does not necessarily translate to the wholesome conversion of uh, many possible Judaic sects to Islam. So that should not, because we are not speaking about Islam here, we're just talking about the prophet and someone who is a redeemer. So Islam doesn't talk about the redemption, right? Of the way uh, the Jews talk about. So maybe only the immediate followers of Muhammad had adopted a new doctrine that could have derived from a little as a sermon that had complemented the other scriptures such as Torah and one gospel and the New Testament. That might have just happened. I'm, I'm not very sure that might have happened. But again, this character Muhammad is someone very, very unknown one. No one knows that who this guy is. And everyone is talking that this guy has appeared. But everyone is very keen to say about a one thing, the anointed one, the Masiha. And the Masiha, as I said earlier, Masiha is no one else but a person who will redeem the land of the Jews, who will you know, get back uh, what was prophesied. 
so we see a very curious thing which appears and this is a kind of a, a trade of inequality among the christians so it uh, here again i have uh, I, last time also i quoted a lot about uh, john bishop from nicu and um, i had also spoken about the fight among the christians uh, based on the idea of uh, who this man jesus is or whether he's a god son of god or now all these ideas come and further in the 7th century also john bishop of nicu gives some very interesting testimonies and <clears throat> he is actually the near contemporary prime source of unfolding the events during the prophet muhammad's lifetime and also after the death but i have highlighted something in the red here and the troubling issue is that the chronicle chapters between 610 to 640 are missing and that a muslim arab edition lies so what you have now is a muslim arab edition between the original and the exact ethiopian translation so <clears throat> this actually has brought a lot of trouble and you know you can't just trust it blindly nevertheless uh, bishop john uh, attests to a muslim conquest of egypt uh, with the help of umar the great uh, that is john uh, and it's uh, written in 690 he says that and amr the son of al as sent a letter to umar the son of al khatab in the province of palestine to this effect if thou dost not send muslim reinforcement i shall not be able to take the misr and he sent him 4000 muslim warriors now in 690 the term muslim has been quoted so many people would believe that hey the muslim has appeared but i will even uh, remove this bit in some time so this probably is the first evidence of the presence of muslim in the syrian home territory of the upcoming umayyad dynasty now i am using the term muslim but again i it doesn't just uh, hear this word out as a term muslim which has been used there we will decode it later that what exactly this muslim means this muslim necessarily doesn't mean the muslim which has been told to you by the standard islamic narrative so modern translator uh, have been taking the word like saracens for muslims outrightly and uh, this is a hout of an ignorance that saracens means nothing other than saracen with its confusing with the pre muslim baggage the the kind the way the history has been led, uh, the assumption is made that if it's a saracen so he would be a muslim outrightly as a missing 30 years we have got uh, around 30 years missing between 610 to 640 what uh, john the john of bishop of nicu says is indicate a brute force of elimination and inconvenient truths and the bishop's text uh, uh, appears otherwise fairly consistent the word might simply be a similarly innocent error whether a rough word muzahirin might have morphed into muslims instead of immigrants or uh, if i take to uh, there is a very great islamic scholar robert kerr he has said that let's call on them all arab so muzahirs is the arabs because they have been it comes from the people who used to migrate and hajj also is about uh, the traveling so uh, hagirin so magarin and that, that is how the muzahirin and all these things come so it's about the immigrant it has nothing to do with uh, the theology of islam per se so the journey in the search for evidence might end at same junction only a couple of decades later in time that uh, it is more important that uh, amr al as was the chief of the muslims here the amr al as has been seen as chief of the muslim not the caliph umar the great 
so caliph umar the great is not the chief of the muslim but this guy amr al asid the chief so the caliph but the caliph would have been the chief uh, as per tradition the umar actually maintained according if i have to believe to tradition umar maintained a family ties to the umayyads through marriage and was nicknamed the redeemer as well so he had got a nickname of being redeemer as if he was a masiha that he had success he had succeeded to redeem the israel so perhaps he had become a caliph to succeed the mission of israel being a redeemer so these things are laying us a lot of clues about what was happening so now again the bishop uh, quoting bishop again he puts the muslim advance yet again into the context of religious strikes within byzantine orthodoxy and this is again coming from uh, these all are well documented and everything is uh, available for record and amr left lower egypt and proceeded to war against rift he sent a few muslim against the city of uh, antion antino and when the muslims saw the weakness of the romans and the hostility of the people of the emperor of heraclius because the persecution wherein with he had visited all the land of egypt in regard to the orthodox faith at the investigation of cyrus the chalcedonian patriarch they became bolder and stronger in the war and you can read it across right so bishop here appears to view ismailites and muslims as one so he is seeing that islamite is ismailites are the muslims and this uh, are maybe as uh, maybe that one of them is a subset of each other so whether muslim is a subset of ismailites or ismailites are subset of muslim so that is the perspective i get from what bishop is trying to say now one very interesting document is there that is called the convenant of umar or the pact of umar umar again was a caliph before uthman uthman was a guy who is said to have you know canonized the quran and sent it out to different cities and it all happened because uh, a lot of versions of quran were trans uh, were available here and there so uh, he, uh, he thought that it's time to standardize it and the text was canonized and it said that the, it said i use the word said that the quran what we have today is the, the version of the uthman and all the quran the first different version of quran what you will get first they will say that uh, you know it's a uthmani quran when you will ask them that this is the version this is the version this is the version then they will say hey that may be the case but these all are the same as the version of uthman so before uthman we had got umar so uh, but the pact of umar is quite important and is a, a document that is generally believed to contain redactions of the 9th century that happened in the 9th century a treaty that may go back to a century earlier so it was conceived in the 9th century but the treaty happened a century earlier interesting yet when evading the scholarly discussion of the documents purpose or uh, the or the evolution and examining the text as authentic in its core and isolated form uh, from later interpretations no uh, no effort was made to convert the residents of syria to a specific faith which is commonly attributed to muslim custom so the syriac people were not being converted under the as per the pact uh, what uh, appears to be in the record so but we know the muslim custom or, or rather uh, we know that how the islam spread we are told that it had spread through the power of sword but the point is that with the power of sword or the sword was really functioning here to convert the people or the sword was functioning to con- convey something else because probably the idea was of islam was not in place so uh, and everyone was living together the convenant uh, or the pact confirmed the intention of a peaceful coexistence of uh, believers from various christian faiths in jerusalem 
as a matter of curiosity dubbed ilaya uh, in the text so we have also in the text of uh, the uh, the covenant of umar we find the term ilaya ilaya is nothing but uh, the elija elija is nothing but uh, it means my god is yahweh yahweh is a the judaic god right but possibly an arabic form of elija or named so far by roman roman emperor had given this name uh, the roman emperor's name was hadrian yeah so he uses the christian god's name not uses the allah also in the, moving further so looking into the convenient of umar these are the few texts which i have put across where in yes i was talking about the ilaya <coughs> was put across and you can see that you know the man is so what is actually happening that treaty this treaty what you see in the front established religious tolerance and respect among the believers of various faiths as long as they believed in one god and were not jews so this is interesting the romans marked for expulsion and are meant to be those of the byzantine empire who tried to cleanse its population of those that did not adhere to the chalcedonian creed and uh, one uh, scholar richard uh, bullet reasons that umar's approach could have been a good strategy same as what the romans had been doing so perhaps he was following the roman idea but then why expel the chalcedonians and not the melkites so here in this what we see that the chalcedonians are expelled but not the melkites why would the monotheist jews be targeted for continuing their ban from the temple mount that had been in place for over the century so this brings a very curious question that why the guy was giving a special favor to the melkites and not to the chalcedonians and the jews if that was the case so this again gives you an idea that perhaps this guy umar idea was very much on the line of the melkites or the uh, or the aryan to a great extent aryan christians a 10th century uh, midashim text if it is authentic uh, we have to uh, because it's available and it's dated 10th century suggest from a jewish point of view so a jewish point of view has been captured that the jews were engaged in a religious quarrel about jerusalem with the melkites of umar so melkites of umar so uh, it's been addressed the melkites of umar so all this umar following a Melkite, uh, Melkite faith, or was he really a Christian? So the doubt comes over here. So what he, what it says, Israel will say to the king of Arabs, take silver and gold and leave the temple. The king of Arabs will say, you have nothing to do with the temple. However, if you want, choose a specific as you did in the past, and we will also offer a sacrifice. And with the one whose sacrifice is accepted. we will all become one people at that time the arabs will say to israel come and believe in our faith but israel will answer we will kill or be killed but we will not deny our belief at that time swords will be drawn bows will be strung and arrows will be sent and many will fall so even the quran insists on a partnership with jews the primary sources seem to agree although this source what we just read it out Is that you know Jews were not so well in Jerusalem, but also the Temple of Mount was a vital component of the invaders' interest. That is, uh, the people uh, who uh, we have been assuming to be the Muslims. It was of a great uh, interest to them. So, according to the tradition, um, 
Umar distributed nascent Quran, which should have contained Prophet Muhammad's last sermon, The Way of Truth. These first editions would later be destroyed by Uthman. We all know this. Upon what it is in the book of the word of Allah. And now see, here it's very interesting that uh, when uh, these all, uh, it has been quoted in the tradition that and this is again coming from the pact of pact of Umar. Upon what is this in the book of the word of Allah? The book is called here the word of Allah, not the Quran. The term is not Quran here. So this time, the covenant of his messenger of the Khalifa and the believers, if they, people of Eliyah, are told the believers here, right, in the, the, in the pact of Umar, the people of Eliyah cannot be the Muslims, right? By the, of course, they will be jumbling off the thing, they will just make a thing that everyone is Abrahamic. So, you know, you, but actually, they cannot be people of Eliyah. It's, uh, it cannot work there, right? So the, he is calling believers who are the people of Eliyah and gave them what was required of them of Jizya. Now, this is interesting. The head text, the pole text, which is also known as Jizya, was not an Islamic practice. If one looks into the past of uh, the Middle East, Mediterranean, and, and all those areas, he will find that the Jizya was standard practice under both the Byzantine and the Persian rule. And it was something that was not very unique to Islam. This is something, you know, uh, this is again a thing fed to you that uh, in the st- standard Islamic narrative that something like that occurs and yeah it seems that the occupiers merely left the pre-existing tax system unchanged so this was nothing Islamic about it but it was just a existing practice however the core in uh, Umar's uh, convenient or the pact is that uh, the greater Syria did not convert to Islam here represented uh, with the holy city of Jerusalem and that the name of the book of Allah remains elusive. So the book of Allah is what it is. It's not Quran. For centuries, greatest Syria was a hotbed of secretarian clashes over Judaic hair splits. All of a sudden, according to the Islamic tradition, they changed their heart and welcomed a new ideology without further ado in the midst of uh, the religious world war. Yeah, we, it's called religious world, um, religious world war can be used because if you really look at uh, the history of that place, all the Christians or all the Judaic sects were with swords against each other and everyone was just trying to outdo the other. So they supposedly, so the people I'm talking about is supposedly embrace an ideology that was fundamentally opposed to, to their own way, not just in details, but in the central tenet to their understanding of Jesus' divinity, so much so that uh, they would come to a view the emerging Muslims and the Antichrist, the symptom of the end of the world. So, no, again, I'm talking about the end of the world because based on a Judaic uh, prophecy, which we spoke about uh, earlier, that uh, the, it has to be Antichrist and it, because this is coming from the Jewish tradition. And this is something which is to be a redeemer. So perhaps this idea of Muhammad was being cooked up through that, uh, the redeemer. And uh, till now, it's all about the people of Eliyah, the, the people, the, uh, the prophet who will be the redeemer, the Messiah and things like that. So moving further. Uh, so again, I'm quoting John, the, John Bishop of Niku and he talks about uh, what's happening in Egypt. And um, he says that the story had unfolded quite differently, which was also busting with the Jews and the Christians. The testament of inhabitants of Egypt was distinct from Umar's concept of peace. 
So what exactly Umar had said for the Melkite was not happening in Egypt. So we can read that now that the day of the festival of the Holy uh, Resurrection, they released the Orthodox that they were in the prison, but the enemies of the Christ as they were for the invaders, they did not let them go without first losing them, but they crossed them and cut off their hands. And so the, the, uh, again, some um, people will see this is a whole Umayyad trend of uh, cutting of hands and the, the, this practice were very common and something which uh, uh, really uh, became very prevalent in the later Islamic part. But here, what is very interesting is that, uh, again, as in, uh, John is saying, they have defied the church of unclean faith and they have brought apostles and deeds of violence like the sect of the Aryans. He's talking about the sect, like the sect of the Aryans again. So they are believing in the idea of not looking at Jesus as the son of God and they are going into this practice. So in contrast to Jerusalem, members of John's, uh, that is the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the bishop which I was talking about, Orthodox in Egypt, were being mutilated, they, they, their hands were being chopped and the things like that. The discrepancy is an indication. So there's a discrepancy in what uh, Umar had said and what is happening. It gives an indication for the need to keep the various Christians, Jewish and emerging Muslim sects and their geographical locations strictly apart when studying the evolution of Islam or the other Judaic. So it gives you a hint that, you know, perhaps the, the way that the discrimination was happening against the kind of Christians, it is setting a base for you to understand that perhaps Islam was just sprouting out of one of the sect of uh, the Christianity that I strongly believe is the Aryan Christianity and to Melkite to some extent, because they both uh, followed almost similar ideas. So uh, as per the whatever research which have happened so far, it uh, uh, seems that uh, Islam was just nothing but other uh, identifying itself as a secretarian elements from the various royal contenders. And it was just placing itself uh, in the phase in the seventh century when the Christians were being discriminated and there were a lot of inequalities. So what should be our current approach? The current approach should be to uh, compare to the pretending we should must actually pretend that the Christians and the Jewish sects during the, the during the sixth century were simply Christians. And once you start understanding that, the whole idea of Islam will start unfolding. If you just uh, look at the narrative that way, with such a view, you would also understand that nothing about the Reformation could even imagine unity, because um, uh, if John Bishop of Nikku did not take a new faith of the Aryan. He at least thought that it was like Aryan Christianity. He had not taken the fate of the Aryan Christian, but he has stated that it was like Aryan Christianity. Just uh, uh, after uh, the, uh, the just after before the mention passes, the bishop the bishop had also clarified that the newcomers through themselves are the servant of the Christ. He says that they are the servant of Christ as well, whoever are attacking. He later termed the belief faith of the beast, referring to Satan. But this does not represent a different opinion from what he thought of the Aryans or anybody else who challenged his pre-Chalcedonian Christian orthodoxy. So if he's calling someone Saturn, it doesn't mean that the person is uh, not Christian. He had these views for the Christian who were not agreeing to the ideas what his orthodoxy was about. We need a new faith would be like Aryan because uh, it not only consisted of an alliance of uh, Converting Jewish, Aryan, and semi-Aryan Christian sects, but it all, but also because 
it added a new doctrinal element and that doctrinal element which had appeared right now was muhammad we don't have any you know uh, reference for the life of muhammad or anything as such because uh, till now because all these texts of ibn ishaq uh, ibn hisham to be precise appeared in the 9th century which is around two or two centuries after the alleged demise of muhammad there was no record of it. no one knows that who this man is just the term called muhammad which is floating everywhere around but no one was interested to really chronicle the tale of this great man now m- moving further so uh, again in the 9th century bukhari has wrote something very interesting so this is a session of bukhari and everyone knows that one of the uh, the first uh, hadith was compiled by bukhari and uh, if people have uh, missed the last talks i'll just clarify that when bukhari wrote the these hadith he rejected almost 98.2% of the hadith which were given to me hadith are nothing but the sayings of muhammad and he chose to out of the uh, 6 lakh given hadith he chose to pen down only around 7 lakh or something the 7000 or something keeping away around 98% so no one knows that who gave him authority to really judge upon that what is the authentic and what not after 200 years when he is not a first hand person to be in contact with muhammad fair enough whatever it may be but coming back to our context here in the 9th century bukhari wrote that a christian had penned the surahs for muhammad this is very interesting there was a christian who embraced islam it said that he embraced islam and read surah al baqarah kaw and the imran the house of imran and he used to write the revelations for the prophet later on he returned to the christianity again and he used to say muhammad knows nothing but what i have written for him so it's a christian he has stated that it's a christian uh, you know he has written this christian guy has written everything for muhammad but muhammad knows nothing about it he is completely unaware so in short he is stating bukhari is stating that if this man has to be true the bukhari has not written that if this man has to be true but you know if this man has to be true so then in that case muhammad was not the messenger of god because he was not telling a truth he knew nothing but it's this christian who is knowing everything then he says that then allah caused him to die and the people buried him but in the morning they saw that the earth had thrown his body out so this is very uh, appalling isn't it that it means that somehow this man is very sinful in the eyes of this man who has written the quran for him right and this becomes very problematic this later tradition so later tradition because bukhari is a later tradition it came two centuries after that i call it later tradition seems to suggest the agreement with the bishop so what we spoke about the bishop earlier is going in agreement according to bukhari although only usable as literary evidence uh, sometimes we can use bukhari as literary evidence sometimes somebody of a different creed had been working with muhammad only to later part in the disagreement so the quran was being written by a man who was not of the same faith or the same idea of this so called man muhammad so this is very interesting part and so bishop is saying something again around 670 around the 7th century bukhari is saying similar thing in the 9th century so when you superimpose the two ideas you get a lot of clues right and now i further move on now the time had come for the holy verse and again don't confuse it with the uh, crusades uh, as yet or the jihad something like that so this holy war was among the christians and um, because there there was no other faith except the christian jews at time there was no islam that way by uh, the doctrine had not been set so what happens 
the persian and the arabian christians had long before rejected the rule of eastern church in cilicia such as font but the ismailites held strengthen their opposition the eastern pontifex this is very interesting ishoya 3 wrote in a letter to the christians of qatar he writes this not satisfied with the wickedness against the church of god your so called bishops extended the demonstration of the rebellion to the rulers there and to the chief ruler who is above the rulers of time they rose up against the prime primacy of the church of god and they have now been scorned of the rulers as the beliefs as insubordination so again you can read this also so what what actually is happening that we see a uh, assertion by uh, by someone uh, addressing to the uh, christians of qatar and i will come back to it so now in order to follow the mainstream uh, muslim story one has to ignore this uh, issue yap's concerns that the aryan bishops had rebelled against pope king and emperor if you have to believe the standard islamic tradition so then this has to be lie so either standard islamic na- narrative is lie or this is lie so uh, whatever it is so let us assume for the time being that muslim story is true and not this one is true now according to the text there was a schism in the eastern church and it seems not impossible that islam was superimposed onto it islam as in the uh, let's uh, i'm using the term islam but assume the uh, idea of uh, the antichrist idea and the way arianism was coming up the islam was superimposed onto it the like arians had essentially taken over uh, most of the bishoprics in the arab peninsula including makkah and it was then called hasor actually so that again is very interesting that where this hasor is that refused to enter a compromise regarding the nature of the jesus for centuries and were intent on defending their old version of like aryan christianity under the new leader under the possible pen name so that is muhammad so they were trying to defend this idea of aryanism under a pen name of a man that is muhammad that time because we don't have any history of this man by then so it has to be seen as a pen name meanwhile the past of the eastern church were already under the forced conversion to the chalcedonian creed through their bishops in response uh, the like arians uh, sized those bishoprics loyal to them so the old guard had acquired the rebellious and non conciliatory approach towards their alien pontiff the one large religious conflict that is documented in the historic record before the advent of muslim tradition is between the byzantine orthodoxy melkite christianity and like uh, like melkite christianity is nothing but almost similar to arianism so there there was there was a fight all of them and perhaps this was a holy war which everyone is referring to it provides for a contextual framework that a different scenario for islam's beginning is not only possible but also probable because this is you know whatever is happening here these guys are completely anti christ these guys are subscribing to the idea of what islam subscribes today of course they don't have a book called quran right now completely they don't have the history of muhammad but their ideas are exactly the way the islam is uh, functioning right so this gives you a very strong clue to now comes to the uthman paradox this is very interesting and uh, one really needs to look into it because and umar the great uh, was the earlier caliph and he was succeeded by caliph uthman the first caliphal leader of the wealthy royal umayyad family clan 
according to the tradition he was elected by the appointment it said that the islamic tradition will tell you that he was and that's how the whole idea of democracy comes in islam that even you know there are a lot of things but when you read the very standard islamic text you get something very alarming and something very different so i am just quoting bukhari again the, the first hadith writer and if you read it across when he was buried that is the group recommended by the umar held a meeting then abdul rahman said reduce the candidates of rulership to three of you azubair said i give you my right to ali talha said i give up my right to uthman said i i, I give up my right to the abdul rahman bin auf abdul rahman then said to uthman and ali now which of you are willing to give up his right to candidacy to that he may choose the better of the remaining of the two bearing in the mind that allah and islam will be the witness so both the sheikhs that is uthman and ali kept silent abdul rahman then said will you both leave this matter to me and i take allah as my witness that i will not choose what the better of you they said yes so abdul rahman took the hand of one of them that is ali and said you are related to allah's apostle and one of the earliest muslims as you know well so i ask you by allah to promise that if i select you as the ruler you will do justice and i will select uthman as the ruler and you will listen to him and obey him then he took the other that is uthman aside and said the same to him when abdul rahman secured the, their agreement to this convenant that is pact he said oh uthman raise your hand so he abdul rahman gave him uthman the solemn pledge and then ali gave him the pledge of allegiance and then all of the medina people gave him the pledge of allegiance so it is very interesting you need to really observe what is happening over here it really uh, you know demolishes the idea of election so it really shows you that how uthman managed to become a caliph while there we don't have any evidence that the six parties mentioned were united with the idea that how all this thing happened that because this is with the reference to allah so this has to happen because i am the witness so you 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 see the the kind of the reference of election what has happened for uthman it's very interesting and uthman and uh, azubair have been have always been the arch enemies if you just look into the uh, standard narrative you will find it at least uh, at some point of time the text is taken this text is taken at the face value the imam decided which one was to become the head of the state if i put it very precisely it was not by election the importance of uh, uthman actually cannot be you know you can't uh, underestimate or can't uh, understate it at all tradition from the 200 years after the uh, after the fact states again after 200 years because all traditions or the scriptures were being written back then that he put together and distributed the quran notably with the help of al azubair azubair is the person with the help of whom the quran was circulated and i spoke earlier that this man uh, had burned across all the earlier quran which is supposed to be have come through umar we will discuss further the minor unsettling issue with uh, uthman is that he is neither a uh, part took in the critical battles alongside the prophet he was never in the part of any battle with muhammad to be precise nor was he part of the place of allegiance to the muhammad so you see he is not at all have been a companion to muhammad that way 
but he has become a caliph on the saying of one of the imam right and he has burned the old of the quran as per tradition so these are three very important clues which you need to bear in mind hence it seems quite strange that there is no contemporary claim to uthmanian problem i don't know why muslims never raise this issue that no protest has happened whatsoever no respective conflicts therefore you know the, the distribution of quran whatever happened through him is also you know very uh, pious thing that he burned the older quran and he just distributed and he he was no one he was no no way related that strongly to muhammad as were others so this is amazing paradox this is a very interesting argument put by two scholars sadeghi and bergman they argue this is very interesting that how can one know that it was uthman who sent the original codices the first argument for the concerns collective memories in the first, the late first century and the early century that is ah 7th and 8th century ad communities remembered having received the standard text from the uthman it was not only the different cities that had the same relocation but also the different and at times clashing religious communities including the proto shis and the harigis no one traced the standard version to a source other than uthman the alis did not ascribe to ali even those who transmitted the variants found in non standard codices such as a codex of ibn masud did not dispute the uthmanic origin of the standard version so this way you can the slide will be there till the time i explain you can also read it through it's very interesting so following the if i really follow the logic given by sergey and bergman the faith must be futile it would have become futile even though it represents a collective memory of miraculous event that did not happen actually so it the faith had broken the modern uh, the modern islam modern scholars readily accept that the ancient arabian uh, egyptian egyptian religions had uh, severed uh, had served the elites to maintain power and were superimposed onto the pre-existing spiritual myths we know about it it is also common wisdom that egyptian pharaohs had tried to erase the memory of entire godly dynasties sometimes by chiseling out the faces and in or other instances by erasing the entire city so pharaohs had been doing it, it was a very natural practice uh, among the egyptian to erase off the memories of the past of the gods and uh, just to take the ideas ahead and uh, you know and this is very interesting i will just deviate and i will tell you one very interesting thing here we will come back to it and that if you look at the idea of cultural marxism also cultural in cultural marxism we have this idea that uh, you know culture is nothing but it comes from the uh, the way the the wealthy one uh, try to set the society they are the one who set set the culture and tradition it's somehow very synonymous to the ideas which has been happening over here so this is what they saw in the past and somehow because of this the idea of culture came that way to the marxist or when the gramsci first spoke about the base and how the economies emerged out of it and the things like that so uh, that's a different topic altogether but i just thought of relating it that how it works so now coming back to the greater judaic beliefs we seem uh, uh, we seem at a loss that similar mechanism might have been at work and the evidence of god of the israelites first appears thousands of years after human helpers had long created other supreme gods so uh, we have witnessed this as well as a uh, 
and the people who really read the religions will know that uh, given enough time and patience the collective memory can indeed be shaped and reshaped and especially in the abrahamic ideas it can really be shaped and reshaped the way you want to and it has been happy depending on the thorough cleansing of the historic evidence in particular particular pertaining to scriptural evidence that was then exclusively in the hands of the priestly elite that time in the case of abrahamic sir and the placement of the first traditions the beliefs would have been a single source that would have triggered a chain of shaping efforts so in modern science we see everything about to formalize just to how to this process best works when embedded in a familiar framework so we can really you know make a framework to understand it, how these things were happening one can take this exercise as well but uh, yes this was happening and they were trying to erase the memory of the past nevertheless in the absence of any evidence it seems imaginable that uh, the base quran could have appeared around this time given the religious context a standard quran may have been distributed under rather than by uthman hence in order for a collective memory to change little effort would have been needed into the mosques so now here again we are talking about the mosque but what are these mosques people do believe that mosque represent uh, islam and uh, there have been also idea that uh, what is this chairman mosque there have been a lot of thing about that when someone says that islam didn't exist then what this mosque was doing from that period of why arabs were led to pray over here and like that so there are various stories around it but the fact is that this term here is how i thought of defining the mosque for everyone to understand <coughs> the aramic word mosque is masjid is for the place of worship and had been used since the 5th century bc so it's been used since 5th century bc it's nothing new so <coughs> as per this tagor rusmit mumtazir jafik the mosque is the heart of the submission and this is a reference is coming for the for them its work in 2006 paraphrase masjid derives from the word sajda to pour down to prostrate oneself the earliest use of the verb is to be found in aramic account of the papyrus of ashikar from the elephantine islands dating to the 5th century bc so that is where it's going back to it's not very so this mosque which have been spoken about right now from where this codex would have been transmitted or given to the various mosques would have been just a place where you know people just come to do the sajda and pray and it had nothing to do with islam because till then the idea of islam is not very uh, profoundly known at least by the primary sources so the major issue what i see with uthman is that he supposedly had burned the muhammad's original dictations of the quran in the copies that had before been distributed by umar it prompts us to a suspicion that the collective memory had a single source at a bargaining table that was driven by a desire to posture with the unity right so and this man just was trying to whitewash the what was the past this amounts to destruction of umar's authentic words from the god himself so if i have to believe the uh, sin that is standard islamic narrative then this man really erase the word of the god of the allah himself not some mass prints that merited the matlab if it happens today that would have led to riots and killings in modern times the burial of quran is an act of enmity right the incineration of the original is a declaration of a war we have been seeing what has been happening we saw what happened in either uh, in norway uh, there have been a lot of incidences around right now 
So nothing happened over there. So it means that idea of Islam, which is existing right now, was not prevalent that time. Even though this man was very prominent, he was a prominent guy. He was a caliph, right? And he burned the world of so why there was no rebellion. You just can't imagine that even if uh, the uh, the president of the Tur- Turkey goes on to do something wrong against Islam, perhaps the whole Islamic regime might come against him. And we have seen in Turkey in the past as well. Right, so, so, but it didn't happen back then. So, indeed, historic evidence is full of examples where Muslims would not dare to extinguish anything with the name of uh, Allah on it. Absolutely not. And it was called the Book of Allah, as uh, recorded earlier. It was not called the Quran. Having destroyed, it creates either a paradox or is an expedient innovation. Right, either of the two things. It is a testament to a perplexing absence and to the post-prophetic invention of at least parts of the Quran, a path not followed here. We don't follow this path anywhere, anymore. However, like uh, we see that a person has been fighting to remove few verses, but things are not going. So, and here the whole Quran was burned, the word of Allah and the new Quran was introduced. We don't know what exactly was the words of Allah to be precise. However, the laws for a bold thesis. It gives you a chance to do a very bold thesis. It might be preferable to dismiss the collective memory of Uthman's involvement in the Quran in order to avoid the <laughs> embarrassment of having destroyed the original holy book. So he, the other case happens, the other thesis can happen, then one can start exploring into whether really Uthman did it or not. For this whole thing is completely cooked up that Uthman codified the, and actually it's a completely cooked up story because you don't find any manuscript of Quran from that period. So it's very much jumbled up. Uthman was determined to establish actually a royal succession. He was establishing a royal succession. And we also saw that the way he was, uh, you know, brought in picture by uh, uh, Imam and how it all happened. His half brothers were appointed to be the governor of Kufa. His first cousin became the top advisor to the caliph. Uh, and these all, what I am saying is as per the Islamic tradition, Usman's foster brother turned uh, governor of Egypt and the governorship of uh, Syria was enlarged. So what does this mean? The placing of relatives, right? It is not talking of democracy at all. Placing relatives in this visible top post sent out a clear message. And um, it seems to the result of an Umayyad conquest rather than an election by the giving up rights and forging concessions, nothing like that. It was more of a conquest, the way Uthman was behaving. Building such a solid power base contradicts the previously stated election mechanism under the under what appears to be the formation of a Muslim theocracy. It, you are always told that the Muslim theocracy was based on the democratic ideas and there have been multiple articles circulating around various papers that have but this case of the Uthman paradox itself you know falsifies everything it rather seems to be a successful result uh, after uh, whatever Uthman did was rather a successful result of a declaration of a war he was rather on a war against the people or the democracy now this is an interesting assertion by Professor Oleg Dabber, he was a great scholar. Uh, he was a, actually a student of, uh, he's a professor, but uh, he called the user term student. So he was a student of uh, art and architecture. Uh, he has done a lot of research in the Islamic world, especially. So he says, and uh, he has explained it quite well. The proper title for the leader of the Muslim community was, and this is very interesting, please note it down. The proper title for the leader of Muslim community 
was Khilafat Rasulullah, that is successor to the Prophet, not Khilafat Allah. The difference is hugely significant. The title Khalifat Rasulullah implies that the Khalif is simply a steward of Muhammad's legacy, a more trustee of the prophetic state. By contrast, Khalifat Allah implies that the leader of the Muslims is very voice of God on the earth invested with divine authority. In reality, every Muslim claimant to the Caliphate from Uthman onward explicitly claimed to the status of Khalifat Allah. This is very interesting. Each leader argued and their followers passionately believed that they spoke for God and dispensed the love of God. To reject God's chosen leader was to reject divine authority, isn't it? This is very interesting. So the use of term title Khalifat Allah by the Umayyad since Uthman suggests that forces were at play and they were not Muslims. If the Muslim idea is to have Khilafat Rasulullah. So I believe you are understanding what I'm trying to say that these all people were not even following the idea which you are told that this was the Islam about. Right. So Grabber, actually this Professor Grabber may have realized how close he was to the core of the issue. But it is remarkable that uh, the Quran picks up exact, Quran has actually given us uh, the difference and Quran also tells that what is the difference between the two things. And I'll just show that verse to you. In Surah 89.2-25, the Egyptian Pharaoh proclaims his own supreme divinity. This is what he has done. But he treated him as an imposter and repelled, then he turned. So he is basically trying to portray himself as Khilafat Allah to decide. Now you read the last verse. So the God visited to him the punishment of the, his life and to the other. Verily herein is a lesson for them who had the fear of God. So this verse is very critical. What does it show you? It seems to turn the text into an analogy to warn the contemporaries to refrain from lifting themselves to the status of Khilafat Allah, which would, one might suppose, introduce a short of intercessor role between Caliph and the God. So that means this guy Uthman was not following Quran. So it gives you two cases. Either Quran was not there or he was not Muslim. So it's complete jumble of the situations altogether. Right? So coming back to the Uthman paradox uh, in the Surah 6.94, and now uh, are you come back to us alone and we created you at first and you leave behind you the good things which we had given, you, you can read this through. So what this means? Yet the point is made exactly that there is no intercessors that had been regarded as the partners with the God. So that's a very clear thing. You cannot be Khilafat Allah, you can be Khilafat Rasulullah, you cannot be Khilafat Allah. So this would not only introduce a paradox to the post-Mohammedan creation of this surah, and but also an extension of understanding of the associated role in the Quran beyond the narrow problem of Trinitarian beliefs as a rejection of Umayyad leaders being elevated to intercessors with the God. So I believe that you are getting a fair amount of idea of what I am trying to hint at. So now, Ibn Ishaq has given again very interesting point. So he says that Uthman is a Christian. So it becomes more interesting. According to him, inadmissible has the evidence is the actors of the time were seeking the true religion of Abraham. So this is what comes from uh, the bi biography of Muhammad Surat Rasulullah. 
which was actually compiled by Ibn Hisham based on the work of Ibn Ishaq. We don't have any work of Ibn Ishaq, but we keep on quoting his Ibn Ishaq because Ibn Hisham says that he has quoted uh, Ibn Ishaq. So here you see a few names. You see the name Warafun Ibn Naful. You see the name Ubayyad Allah Ibn Jashn. You see the name Jayat. The three names have come in. So here it's spoken about Ubaidullah remained in doubt until after the revelation he made profession of Islam and went to Abyssinia, which is Ethiopia, the modern Ethiopia. But when he arrived there, he became a Christian and died. Thus, thus after having renounced Islam, third Uthman went to Byzantium, where he became a Christian and attained high office. The fourth Zayed became neither Jew nor Christians, although he renounced the religion of the Quraysh. And abandoned idols, blood, and sacrifices slain for the idols, and contained the burning of life of female infants. So, the, the, the Waraf was an alleged cousin of Muhammad's first wife. He was a Melkite priest, and uh, emphasis uh, and he emphasized on Torah. He used to talk about Torah a lot. Ubayd Allah Ibn Jashn was a alleged brother of uh, one of the Muhammad's wives. Jayad is believed to be an adopted son of Muhammad and a former Syrian slave. So all these guys were not Muslim, they were Christians. Ishak Tech suggests that Jayad started out at Quraysh, right? He started at the Quraysh, uh, Varaka and Uthman as a Melkite Christians, and Ubadullah probably as a Syrian Christian. So you don't see anything about so this is coming from the biography of Muhammad. But the most authentic thing which we have to believe written 200 odd years after the alleged death of Muhammad. All agreed in their opposition against the creeds of the fourth uh, Ecumenian Council of Chalcedonians. So whatever, un- what is interesting that this Melkite, what uh, Warakka and Uthman were, um, uh, Ubadullah was a uh, again Christian. So Jayad started out as Quraysh, right? So all these ideas were against the idea of the Council of Chalcedon. Whatever the ideas of the foundation of Jesus Christ, what they had led, this was completely against it. One way how one can really reconcile Ishak's version with the accepted history of Islam is to actually you have to, you know, you say that you just forget it. If you want to believe the tradition of the Islam, though it also comes from this book, again, you have to believe that he's a liar. So this is very, so this whole paradox makes the things very interesting and they just don't work out. So again, Rome is in picture. So here, seemingly unrelated, another inner Christian religious conflict had taken place in Constantinople and Rome, uh, between the Constantinople and Rome. A greater Syria had broken off and um, from Constantinople, so did the church in Rome. They are broken off. Trying to emancipate the church, Pope Martin I, who lived around the 7th century, and Maximus the Confessor, both the Eastern Christians, tore down the edicts of the Byzantine Empire and ended the issue of uh, whether Jesus is alive, uh, Jesus' will was divine, human or both. So in order to restore the obedience, the teenage emperor Constantine ordered the, for Pope Martin to be arrested. It seems that uh, the, the Pope had been accused of conspiring with the Caliphate that time. And so what, what was existing that time? So in the defense, the Pope says so. At uh, no time did I send letters to the Saracens, nor, uh, as some say, a statement as to what uh, they should believe 
neither did i ever dis, uh, dispatch money except only to those servants of god traveling to that place or to the sake of arms and the little which we supplied to them was certainly not conveyed to the saracens so this is what he says in his defense so obviously the papacy in rome was uh, involved in a greater dispute uh, between byzantine orthodoxy roman christianity melkite christianity and uh, uh, which was like arianism um, arianism had also have uh, so they would have possibly aligned with the saracens because their idea was um, uh, against the christendom or their idea was completely anti christ or something like that in order to uh, get rome in line greek puppet popes were uh, dispatched from their uh, from their onward while they did not bother to describe their beliefs for centuries to come the idea that the western popes had tried to make friends with the saracens can you know you can't just ignore it it was happening after all the orthodox beliefs had before been imposed imposed onto the people and the rome uh, uh, and the rome was a not looking to very eager to do it and also these were against the will of the jesus what people talk about most of the time pope martin's letters suggest that uh, their relations were at least friendly if not very intimate at least it would have been friendly the danger may happen that the vatican negotiated with the saracens for a religious alliance against the constantinople so the vatican was involved here to do something against the constantinople here and trying to align with the saracens who are the arabs here arab christians to be precise who are you know just uh, on the verge of becoming muslims pretending that the umayyad would be of melkite sect close to pope martin's pre herculean eastern church but vehemently opposed to orthodoxy seems more logical than the assumption that dealing with a muslim antichrist that uh, seems to be a more logical take for me so we also see a incidence of internal jihad which was occurring and uh, what happens there is very interesting so uh, we already saw that how whole of a room uh, the the war between the constant time and the the church and the other church ideas were in the place and they were trying to align with the saracens so somehow the stage was set for the islam to spread and uh, perhaps uh, with this uh, thing happening around the 7th century uh, the thing shaped at the holy war and the thing started engulfing drastically now this is again further more interesting there is a scholar called robert kerr he says that the heretics are deceiving you there happens what happens to the order of arabs which is certainly not the case for ishmaelite immigrants that is tayay immigrate do not aid those who say that god lord of all suffered and died here again the term magri has come so it's important to go back to the isho yaps text which we discussed that time uh, it uh, relate to, to those who mentioned the muslims in the doctrines it actually gives to the clue the word he used here was magri which is now commonly translated as immigrants so if you look for the translations anywhere you will find that it as uh, immigrants it represented in similar fashion in greek as magrait magratai and in arab as muhajirin however that this means that uh, muslim implies an acceptance of the certain historical and doctrinal aspect of islam 
that seemed premature, it can be said that the group was riding under the flag of Tayaye Mahagre. So Tayaye Mahagre is very crucial because you know all these people are carrying the uh, the, the idea of being Tayaye. I had given a brief glimpse about Tayaye last time that the Tayaye were the people who had migrated to uh, migrated uh, from the southern part of the Arabia towards the northern and around 2nd century and the first reference to the presence of Muhammad also comes as a Tayaye which uh, when, he, when we, we speak about the war between the Romans or the Byzantine people and the, and the, with the uh, near the Gaza with the Persians here he has been uh, told as the Muhammad the Tayaye it means the Muhammad who belongs to Tayaya. So it also shapes Muhammad northward. It doesn't, because Tayaya are the people who are living in the northern parts. This in turn would uh, render the term Lakhmid or Ishmaelite immigrants exiled from Syria during the 6th century. And this has been actually de- discussed very detailed by the Robert Kerr in his uh, discussion. So you know, what happens is that this, this term Muslim has come from the term Magre, which uh, happened to become Magaratai in the Greek and in Arab, it's called Muzarin. So it had nothing to do. So when you see that term Muslim appearing in the earlier text of uh, this, uh, the bishops and everyone, it's not talking about the Muslim as Muslim, what we know, as, but it's talking about the immigrants, right? And we saw uh, we saw in the last lecture that how the Lakhmets where uh, uh, the people who were the immigrants who, who had migrated and when the persecution was happening and they had to take and uh, when uh, the Byzantine had forced an alliance with the, the Ghasnets and the Lakhmit were get, and then the Lakhmit were supported by the, uh, the Persians. So, and because the Lakhmits were uh, subscribing to the idea of the Aryan Christianity, that is to see Jesus not as the son of God and breaking the idea of Trinity, so the Persians uh, supported them and they started uh, accepting the Persian idea. So somehow the, this Lakhmit started transforming into the Muslim. And here again, the Maghrib, which is being talking up, spoken about, and especially the Tayaye, this is again coming from the same thing. So those Lakhmits were the people who later on became the Umayyads and the things went on and on. So here, what uh, Robert Kerr is trying to say is that they were two separate groups. And so... He further says that the calamities did not happen by the order of Syrian Arabs, but the, by the Ismailite immigrants. That is the Maghrebi. There are a series of different doctrines uh, which have emerged, and also uh, they conflict uh, with the ideas, and uh, they kind of at times mix this uh, Islamite immigrants with the Arabians and the things as such. But what has remained common in all of them that they all speak about the Melkites. And they speak about the Aryans, and they all are opposed to the Orthodox Christian in the Constantinople. So, what happened? Ishayyub also referred to a large presence of the pagans throughout the Middle East and confirmed the concept of relative religious freedom under the Umayyads. He, he has completely stated it. So, as for the Syrians, Arabs, to whom God has at that time given rule over the world. You know very well that they have they had to act towards us. Not only do they oppose Christianity, but to praise the faith, honor the priest and sense of our lords, and give us aid to the churches and the monasteries. Why then do our people of Oman reject their faith on a pretext of theirs? 
And this, when the people of Oman themselves admit that the Arabs have not compelled them to abandon their faith, but only asked them to give up the half of their possessions in order to keep their faith, yet they forsook their faith, which is forever, and retained the half of their wealth, which is for the short time. This is what uh, actually Ishoyab had said. So it seems that Ishoyab was uh, on a mission to win back the defecting bishoprics in the Arab Peninsula. He was just trying to get the faith back. As was shown, we, we spoke about it before, that only in Syria of that time were the Christians tolerated in the expressway. And Oman seems to have uh, accepted the faith of the Umayyads. That is, uh, we don't know their faith exactly, but uh, whatever faith they were transforming to, they had accepted it. And they had rejected the conversion to Byzantine Orthodoxy. Having said that, first, uh, Muhammad's relatives Ali was uh, to wage a civil war against the Umayyads, according to tradition. This is what we are told. Assuming that they were united in one form or another before the advent of Ali, the latter, that is uh, Ali, fought, uh, brought Syria under the allegiance, at least for a while. So, um, so we see that uh, now there's a, this whole internal jihad is picking up among the Romans themselves. And uh, we still see the no glimpse of Christianity or whatsoever. There is no glimpse of Islam or anything as such, because we don't even have seen what exactly is the Quran so far. The face to my question is that conversion in India of Hindus to Islam and Christianity is their attack on our fault lines in addition to allurements. My first question to you is to tell us the fault lines in Islam and Christianity to counter the conversion. Second question is give us link about the authentic Quran and Bible in English or Hindi language. Thank you. Uh, I'll first answer the second part that uh, we don't have any authentic version of Quran as such. Uh, I'll tell you the reason for this. Uh, because uh, Quran has gone through a lot of transformation, a lot of changes has happened. And uh, the, the Quran was canonized or standardized only for the world in 1985. That is only three years before I was born. So it's only three years old to me. So, and this Quran was a Hafs Quran. This Hafs Quran was something which was conceived in the 10th century. Uh, and it is a different version. And the story goes back then to Cairo. In 1924, when uh, the, what happened, the whole Islamic university uh, used to have the question on the Islamic theology, theology and the stuff like that. And uh, when people used to have different answers to the question, because there were different versions of Quran, right? So then they say that we need to make a Quran standard. So they choose a Hafs Quran. And in 1924, it was adapted in the Egypt. And the same Hafs was later adopted for the world. So we have multiple versions of Quran written by multiple people. And that the question of what you're pointing to, it really uh, creates serious problem. And it really raises a concern that the text, which itself is not standardized. And if you ask Islamic scholar that if you give, if I give you a blank paper, which version of Quran will you write? He will not be able to answer. He will either dodge it. Or he will either, you know, just bluff it around that you don't know the Arabic, so uh, that will happen. But no one on the earth can write a standard version of Quran for you. No one, no a single Islamic scholar, whoever it may be, I can put it on record. 
as far as the bible are concerned yes we have some very authentic records which are uh, which which are now available to the archive for the british uh, british uh, library uh, we can get it online and uh, th- th- these are very much easily accessible but again there are various versions of it and but what, what is one good thing is there in bible that when they did the corrections or mistakes were put across so you can see that when the editions happened they are written in some different kind of font or something like that so you can see that where it happened but when it comes to quran you just can't make out where the alterations were made where and there have been some very amazing studies where people have worked on the old manuscripts of quran to see that how much overwriting had happened and how much you just uh, they used to just erase it off and do a re- rewriting over it there used to be a patchwork and those have been documented so it's very tough to find and because it's very tough to find authentic version of quran it's very tough to really say that uh, how good muslim you are because a muslim needs to be defined by a quran per se with the way it goes and because it's a kind of a circle and quran itself is not defined so it becomes very challenging we don't know anything as such so uh, yes uh, uh, i didn't wanted to say it but uh, of course this uh, faith is having some serious problem because of uh, the way the scriptures uh, went ahead maybe something i don't know what would be the way forward way forward only would be to bring the original history forward and let people accept that okay it's your version that's okay it's your version it's okay um, but, but there won't be any concentrated idea of it because there was no concentrated idea back then in 7th century and we don't have a record of it coming back to the first part of it it's very serious that um, you know the kind of uh, conversion and the thing what we face through and there's a very there's a fundamental um, reason to it and i had explained it last time when i did the talk i started off by saying that how this idea of the abrahamic faith started and this goes the route goes back to dasraj and yuth right when the first migration happened and then further a battle happened and the uh, battle was based on the ideas because our dharmic idea was something different the people differed and when raja sudas came into being and there was a migration which happened outward and the people in the persia and the people who started following the zoroastrianism and interestingly the zoroastrians too had a cyclic time initially they also had the yugas uh, initially and when this happened that further got corrupted to uh, the abrahamism uh, and then from abrahamism we also see that jewish uh, jewish faith also did uh, emerge out of first yahwaism first there was yahwaism then yahwaism were idea where yahweh was considered as a god and rest all god were you know uh, uh, considered they, those those gods are also important until it became abrahamic it became the the jew faith completely then yahweh became the only god and there is no other god something like that and it happened around 1200 bc or something and now all these ideas were very political in nature after that whatever it emerged like how i narrated you the story of how islam was happening and how this all thing you see a lot of politics over there the control of the power and you see that there are various kind of christians who are not seeing jesus as a son of god are living very happily under the caliphs while others are not so there also we see a sense of uh, so called secularism what people often talk about uh, the sense of secularism comes because only idea that one who agrees to the idea of antichrist they will go by them now because of their political power they keep on expanding and they have to expand and their doctrines are set that way because 
when you have got a political power you will have a doctrine to control the thing like marxism is a political power so they do also have a doctrine they need to work that way and it is said that you know, you have to spread because in politics there is nothing but the growth in dharma there is nothing called growth dharma is something which is very constant so that is how we differ from them dharma is very uh, and just to uh, just to differ uh, just to give a very different kind of um, analogy feminism is a political movement while naritva is a very uh, you know permanent thing which is always there so this ism setup so like that these guys whoever are on the verge of conversion they are following a political idea so they will like to grow and their growth model will be very unnatural because this is not dharma dharma is very natural so they will and we and to counter it we really need to reinforce back to our ideas that of course we have seen a disaster but there is of course something that you know we are still chanting the rig veda which was written millenniums back we still are the continue no other civilization had this legacy we have done it and we can still do it and it will only happen if we can still go back to the roots like a kid i always say a kid needs to be told uh, when he goes to in a standard 11 that uh, you know the calculus was given by madhavacharya from kerala it's not newton and lambert he will start getting accentuated towards our dharmic values and when we get uh, accentuated towards dharmic values things will better in southeast asia we had spread while others were doing the crusades how through the soft power singapore takes the name singapura by so there is a lot of soft power in our whole idea so it will happen we will have to really rectify ourselves we are at the fault right now from vivek ranjan ji he says that as abhas ji mentioned that uh, this is a jumbled history in one of his slides so are the other scriptures the non jumbled ones see uh, i am not following the scriptures to be very precise and uh, i do follow the primary sources so quran is a book which has been compiled into a very small piece for you to tell the whole of a story right and then but we have got a vast stretch of history if you want to write a history of around say, what happened in the 7th century even for 50 years you can't finish it like i am trying to write a book on babar and i am unable to finish it in right now i have crossed 400 pages and still i am unable to do it so how can you concise that history into that small the text which i refer to they are independent in themselves like if i am talking about uh, john uh, bishop john or i am talking about bishop sebius so they have their own accounts of different things they they are talking about something and those records exist they are all there in the records right now when it comes to quran you don't have any authentic record you don't have a single manuscript right the in the name of manuscript the oldest manuscript which bbc just jumped upon a quite back is uh, the one which was appeared in birmingham but that's only two pages two pages cannot be quran so we don't have any authentic sources for it second they have tried to merge a lot of things it was more of a not a very intelligent creation if i have to say it was more of a you know just keep on jumbling and mixing the thing the purpose was something else purpose was just to go Uh, to collect any antichrist document what you can get and just collate it and just you know patch up into a book it was a very sloppy book that way and uh, that that's how it happened so uh, this jumbling has to be decoded with reference to the uh, situations what match the other places like if bukhari is saying something in the hadith for example then if you see that sebius record is matching then you say ah okay this might be the true one because sebius was writing exactly in the same time but bukhari was writing 200 years after that 
right so so that, that gives you a very fair amount of clue that how to really differentiate between the jumbled source and a very clean one uh vikranjan ji asks another question he says what is the ratio of similarity between the bible and the quran there, there is a lot of similarity actually and there but the more of a similarity goes in terms of the old testimony because and because the idea was to keep the thing very anti christ to that great extent and also what happens is that uh all the thing what has been referred is from bible so i would say that it's not uh, exactly the similarity rather i see that it's complete copy paste from the bible whatever is there it's just some situation the names have been changed and the because of pronunciations and the stuff like that nothing more it's just a copy of bible to you it's a very con- con- concise version like i said in the last presentation it's a uh, liturgical version uh, like a liturgical study is something where you just take a keywords and something from a particular books and just compile together so there is no point how much similarities exactly that just read in a different language when i say language it also means a temperament and what you want to express okay avashi uh, vijay raghavan ji is asking when will your books on the moguls be released apart from the one being discussed now and he requests you to translate your works in major indian languages so everybody can benefit from it yeah moguls we are hoping to get it by this november or december that's what the target is and again the actually the things got delayed because of the covid and a lot of things happened yeah that's one thing and the second is that yes uh, attempt is definitely to get more and more books in the indian languages but as i said that the problem is that uh, we are we are in a sorry state uh like for example i'll talk about garuda prakashan garuda prakashan did a very smart initiative of translating a lot of books but the kind of response what they are getting i i, I might sound a very business minded over there but at the same time you have to see that the uh, publications like garuda prakashan or indic houses which don't have any you know support from anywhere else or some they really rely on the people if the books are not uh, really purchased in the bulk and if the market is not then sustenance becomes very challenging so it has become a quite a tough one but uh, this time i'm trying to because uh, this book is coming out of sir uh, out of some affiliation with the foreign institutions as well so i am expecting that uh, we will get in some translation the major target is to get uh, at least three south indian languages and at least to get uh, uh, i am also targeting for eastern languages like bengali and uh, and also to look into the odia uh, to start with this is the target for right now that sounds wonderful avashi and i think you should also document the series that you've done in this talk into a book also that would be highly beneficial so i have a question from ab um, he says or she says thank you for the presentation avashi religion may be seen as an ethos that is best understood at the time in which it is distributed amongst the community with the regards to the influence of political agenda and power acquisition is it possible that prior to the canonized version of the quran there was a version of the uh, there was a version of the quran that was more well known no uh, there is nothing called actually today i will uh, i couldn't reach to the because uh, when i was speaking quite long so uske baad kafi zyada ho gaya i couldn't stretch towards the quran but the story of quran is also very interesting it's not act, there was nothing called quran quran also comes from like i said initially it was called the 
word of allah the book of allah it, it had nothing to do with the so you we are now looking at quran as a piece of book wherein few words are written there so what you see it as it was there in forms of various forms of bibles you have to say the the other books judaic sect scriptures but as a quran of course there was no such thing as such because this compilation happened very late the other part of his question was that the concept of a holy trinity as you mentioned uh, in the kaaba there was a trinity first so he says the concept of a holy trinity is common to many religions including islam do you have any comment with respect to this similarity in ethos you see because see first of all the similarity if you start trying to dig a similarity then you can make similarity and connect dots and find out anything like if you look at sky and if you believe that i want to see this you might even see that uh, those clouds are behaving that way so of course uh, uh, but yes logically speaking there are certain similarities in terms of trinitarian concept islam completely reject the idea of trinity it doesn't accept uh, it uh, the way it has to be because when the moment the trinity comes in the the uh, islam just uh, you know the foundation of islam just uh, demolishes and that's why the first uh, the verse of quran uh, which is in the dome of rock uh, was 691 ad it happens to be anti christ anti trinitarian so the first verse of quran itself known has been anti trinitarian and yes uh, trinity the concept trinity had been existing from long again that because of being an architect i can tell you one thing that people have been fascinated about three points the geometry of the triangle it has been very fascinating and uh, if you look for the older plans of long back like the prehistoric times what we call we find a lot of uh, uh, the plans the footprints drawn in triangular form because triangle was considered as a symbolically a stable form uh, triangle was also considered as somehow people had this idea of a spirit god and so uh, that is how they used to link it and our trinity is something we don't have trinity but uh, something similar like we have got uh, some difference it is largely about uh, idea of looking at the symbols nothing more because all these ideas which erupted in the west uh, were not very theological with they were not very dharmic in nature but they were just a reaction to the society or reaction to what they saw around and the conception of the god itself is very different over there avas ji namaste thank you so much for um, for the talk uh, every talk of yours you know we actually need number of Uh, at least books and uh, articles to read to actually understand a bit of it um my question would be probably a little different from what you have discussed today so if you're going to cover it in the future sessions you can of course ignore it so whenever we talk about islam uh, barring its origin we see that the whole uh, the turks play a very important role right so and i always thought that turks only came into picture when the ottoman empire came in however i was reading an article and i got to know that it goes way back when arab had a fight with china and i think turks supported arabs and that is when the you know this this um, what do we call it? the joint venture started and later on because of their modern warfare you know their courage you can say they actually rose to high powers and took over um now if that is true again what i have said could be incorrect you can always correct me for that but do you think that islam would have spread so much and feared so much if not for you know this turk 
getting engaged because arabs yes they have their tribes they have their internal fights but they are not known for warfare turks yes they are so that is the first part do you think that islam today would be the way it is if not for turk joining it you can say and the second because if you look talk about india as well the people who came here they are called mongols they were not mongols right they were turks and they derive a mongolian ancestry um so when we look at this and when we look at all, the whole colonization of islam we see that there's a deadly combination of three things there one is the western expansion expansionism idea to say that we want to colonize people uh the warfare which is which comes from turks and the bit of a addition to that will be the you know the whole book the quran as a book because turks in asia were not were deadly but the whole expansionism started when they became westernized so today when we look at turks they are not really turks they they have this greek ancestry so do you think this is a deadly combination that we are facing today and hence it becomes a challenge that it is not just an arab concept anymore it is now a global concept so uh, just to answer you think uh, first we, uh, in regards to the turks turks necessarily uh, what people see today they are not turks they uh, they are the people with the ancestry from the greeks and if one really captures how the peopling had happened they will get even more clues and yes turks were the most ravishing people and uh, initially the turks uh, have fought the against the muslims as well if uh, i have to follow the standard narrative and there is one very interesting aspect uh, one is the turkistan or the, one one is the tajikistan the place this is different from the place of turks people at times consider that this tajikistan which has been spoken spoken about they are that is about a turks also but this tajikistan is land of tayaye tayaye are the people who had migrated from the southern part of the arabia towards the northern part in second century ad so they are the people who uh, and in fact a document also say that muhammad was one of the tayaye or he was from one of the tribe so that is one thing second thing is that yes the turks actually have this legacy of being great warriors if i have to say and they they were two good warriors and by by the way they used to live it was very nomadic nomadic process and they were very barbaric in nature and people were surprised to know that uh, you know uh, when you read the text of these people and of course the best text to know about these people nothing other than reading about the turko mongols the turko mongols that way so they tell they will there you will know that they didn't had the concept of marriage at all in all the like if you open bavarnama you will find that all the turks what they are doing they uh, the women are just given and taken uh, there is no concept of the marriage there is no institution of marriage as such and it's very much celebrated they also had this trend so the, the, there is a lot of barbaric practice which used to exist so with the power because of uh, the reason where they come from and the reason really affects that how you grow and how you you know have this uh, hereditary of uh, uh, getting into the activities so warring was one of their activities and with this barbaric nature and when the islam came into in their hand it became a very dangerous thing you know it becomes a very dangerous weapon and the turks were feared of only one people for the mongols right and the mongols were very again the mongols attacks are more or less very similar that way when it comes to really executing their ideas of anything and whenever this combination of islam got on to with turks and the mongols 
it becomes very deadly and that is why when people say that see mughals uh, you rightly said uh, mughals is not what they wanted them to be called it. they call, wanted to call them as tamuria because tamur was someone who was always considered to be that he is the one who is destined to be at the throne of india that's why bavar wanted to conquer india to be precise and uh, the mongols were considered to be a very downgraded people for them of course there was a marriage alliance and bavar draws the maternal side from the uh, the chengiz khan and the paternal side from uh, the, uh, the the tamur and what is very interesting is among all this lineage if you read carefully there is also intermixing of the alexander so that has also happened if you uh, read the whole tree very carefully so of all the hordes though mughals are considered to be very you know the noble one the the, the moment you use, don't use the term mongol and not the turko mongol you use the term mughal it looks very you know elite and sab kuch bada acha lagta hai and it goes but they were very deadly combination of uh, being the nomadic barbaric and at the same time they had this weapon of uh, really killing the people in the name of religion so before the mughals had come there were a lot of devastations but when the mughals came devastations increased but they were very smart guys now because and if one reads the administrative system of uh, mongols chengiz khan was a great administrator not many people know about it uh, perhaps some people would have always considered that he's a barbaric and what not but he was a great administrator he has got amazing brains so this brain and this concept of the barbarian turkic made a deadly combination and more than islam what really did harm or a devastation was uh, not the concept of islam but it was being they being the turks if i be very honest about it and it just islam fell into the wrong hands of course there's a lot of problems with islam i'll not say that it's way right but islam really fell in a very wrong hands and they caused a lot of devastation and it and in future also the current turks were not actually turks would be the most dangerous people if i have to say in combination of the geopolitics given and what do you think is the contribution of west per se and when i say west i'm talking about the european agenda because the whole colonization actually started happening when turks met with you can say the greek ancestry because before that it was barbarian before it before that it was looting before there it was you know killing but then this whole concept that let's convert people let's you know go and uh, capture places let's go and capture property do you think that happened when this this concept met with the western colonization concept or as we call expansionism uh, see uh, this is again a, a concept which has been bred into the very uh, the, uh, the the neo marxist books and that is how they take the narrative but uh, if you look at this whole mediterranean belt and the people of middle east and also the people of the west at the same time these all people were very expansionist by nature all of them and in, in fact our neighbor china was very expansionist they in fact the whole concept they work on a concept wherein you know they have this birthright to capture whole of the world that's how china also works and it goes back to second century bc right so this whole idea of expansionism was there in everyone except for the indians for some part of region except for the cholas and cholas was also more of a diplomacy it was something very different it was not the way the other people expanded so i don't believe that the the the, the uh, uh, while they really got in touch with the greeks or you know when this amalgamation happened 
that brought the idea of expansionism because they were expanding before then as well there is a traces of uh, their expansion very well documented and so were the mongols mongols turks and so were, and arabs were some you know we we kind of uh, don't get much idea about the arabs because we don't have much of documents about them but when you look at the documents of these uh, jesuits or when you talk about the documents of the syriac documents what the bishop is saying then you see that you know even these arabs were no less uh, and the, they, they were just looking to expand and the western expansionism had this root in the idea of expansion of christendom to uh, initially the turks really followed the same principle and now they had got a, got islam so for the with the help of uh, or rather what you can say with the ideas being taken from the west because they had learned quite well that uh, how the things need to be done they were more polished and they were very crisp about the idea because the greeks of course were you can say that after indian civilization if one civilization had such a meticulously the meticulously then it was the greeks and the romans no one else right so of course they had that with them but islam really made it more dangerous because islam comes up with the idea islam is currently one faith which gives you total solution and when you got total solution it means that you are totalitarian like when when someone is saying that how to eat how to you know uh, everything so it comes with a doctrine but when it got to the turks who itself were barbaric and then they also got the things from the west like the colonialism from the greeks it became a lethal combination this was fortunate that mongols didn't got it that way otherwise they would have been the most ravishing one um avashti the my third question would be it's in current context so you can of course ignore if it is not related to today's topic because today is more about history uh now in this day and age where we have internet we can read they also know where the muslim holy land is why do you think that the muslims of indian subcontinent still have their allegiance with the with the turks which means today's turkey and not with uh the saudis for that matter or anywhere in arab so they are today a convenient rich auntie who they know that can give them money in need so that is the only reason why they have this allegiance but then the religious allegiance is still with with turkey why do you think that is and it is i'm not just talking about common people i'm talking about the molvies and the scholars and it's 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 such that today the arabs sometimes are called badu not in a on a official channel but otherwise they're called badu you know it is not really a slang but it's a yeah. nomad tribe if i'm not wrong is that allegiance still there this confusion uh, so it's a very, very simple see uh, like i told you that the first uh, guy to burn the quran was arab isn't it and it was usman who burnt it and if you see the arab society that time what uh, we have been told through the primary sources this society was just trying to sustain together just being antichrist that was their doctrine nothing else it was no, nothing was about allah and there was nothing so and uh, arabs were definitely evolving they were just getting civilized because there was no hint of civilization in arabia back then like people say that makka is a mother of civilization but there is no hint of it being civilization till 5th 6th century forget about it being mother of civilization so arabs definitely were not very progressive they were not progressed that time they were not very they were not so staunch muslims per se what they were and uh, i do believe that that is a tradition what they have carried and in fact the sto- uh, the even when it comes to the indian invasions so invasions what happened over us 
it was not so deadly deadly by the arabs because uh, you know in fact uh, i do believe that mohammed bin qasim story is also a cooked up one because uh, we don't have any primary source for it you hear about it from chachinama which was written 500 years after so our uh, mohammed story was written 200 years after uh, mohammed bin qasim story was written 500 years after this chachinama chachinama says that it had a reference but uh, where is that reference no one knows about it so <laughs> you know arabs i see that they always have been a kind of a docile people of course they had ambitions and things like that and of course they did have been there but when it comes to the virtue of the nature who they are then turks uh, have been the way they have been always and they are the one who can always be you know arabs will not come and say that you know let's convert this church to a uh, uh, mosque or he'll not say that let's convert this uh, temple to thing like that but turk will be very open about it and we have been seeing it very historically all the ravishing and the marauding job which was done in india to historically was done by the turks not by the arabs that way not to that extent so there is a civilizational difference and people also know it and they do show the allegiance only for the fact that you know it all comes to the caliphate and that once the caliphate was passed on to the turks that time when they took over and whether you, i don't know how many people know about it the usman one who crafted this empire ottoman usman is again the name coming from the caliph usman and his we discussed a whole stretch about this usman uthman right so a lot of things come from it he was the guy who had burned the quran to right and he is the guy who had been dictatorial when we talk about a democracy in islam so you see there is a lot of dots to connect and it really sets a very precedent they know their books very well they know that where they are going to now saudi prince is not going to come and raise and say that you know i will not let this temple built and they are very they have been like that from very beginning let's not you know creep uh, about them people creep out to saudis also but they have been they are people uh, of course they are inside job doers but that's a different thing but as civilization arabs have not been that bad as how has been the turks and of course they will need uh, that bad one because they want darul islam they don't want darul harab all the time um uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful talk today uh, so uh, i have one question um is you know left and um, uh, islam basically are they uh, you know uh, conveniently wedded to each other or it's only on the surface this alliance and if you scratch below they are again anti to each other see uh, no communist can be with islam or christianity or no islam or christianity can be with other nor islam or christianity can be with communist if i be very precise and very clear about it so what you see today is completely a facade a facade which is set to counter a common enemy what they see it as and uh, that com- common enemy definitely is the uh, indic idea because you know like i always say that it's only indic civilization which still has been chanting the same hymn which was written so many millenniums back no other civilization had have had that power every civilization converted but not india of course there was something over here because the reason being that we are a dharmic people there is difference between dharma and religion we all would have known it by this time that there every, everyone has spoken about it so what it does that we are we are the follower of the natural processes we are the follower worshipper of the nature you don't have any you know like bhagavad gita also say that times that you did not really know the vedas to really be a dharmic right it's your karma and the things can which can make you a great one and can connect you to the to the parmatma or so 
it it is something which is very different altogether so that is the reason why all these uh, all so it's important to erase the existence of the hindus that way until it is not done now the communist can work because the communist can erase the islamist islamist can erase the communist and this this trinity of the christian islam and uh, uh, the communist can work all in total it can really work well and if you do if you just recall the history of it if you read about the soviet soviet has massacred so many christians and soviet has massacred so many muslims still the persecution of muslim is happening in china but they will not raise a very strong word they all were so strongly against uh, something what happened in paris right but no one has been raising such kind of protest in uh, against what's happening in china no, you you have voices you have seen voices but you don't have that many voices everyone is just trying to play the game of the convenience it's just a game or it's just a marriage of convenience nothing else and the things will just go off it will we will never let it happen but of course once this happens communists will take over all of it just an observation made from the answer the discussion that was going on right now between you and the person um about the arabs uh, the arabs uh, there's no denying that they did do invasions as well they were not as organized as the turks but they were equally pretty violent and very violent uh, marauders that's been their history this constant fighting of arab tribes and mohammed qasim did invade sindh uh, thrice if i'm not wrong uh, they were very barbaric uh, invasions so there's no denying what mohammed achieved in making islam is actually united all these disparate arab tribes which until then had never been united they had different concepts i remember reading in joseph anton uh, by salman dashti about how uh, what you are mentioning about this whole thing being so disorganized you know the quran or even texts associated that his father apparently wanted to um, have an organized sort of setup where it goes more sequentially otherwise the quran as it is right now has no sequence it's really got no hierarchy it just goes here and there and everywhere that's how i got to know that it was there. and he said his father actually wanted to do that but coming back to what i was saying there's no denying that the arabs were uh, well not as uh, you know effective if you have to call it in violence as uh, the turks but but were quite bad and mohammed achieved what nobody else had that he actually brought them together and i can say there's a certain amount of uh, surety because i've lived in the middle east and my father has been there for decades so we actually know of uh, you know people who no matter how wealthy they were they would still you know they have these gold uh, um, uh, teapots which are made of pure gold i'm talking about like how many decades ago and they would have uh, bakra tied next to it kind of thing so i see you know they are like that like the bedouins the way they drive there is certain way that the the, the, the bedouins still drive so they were a disparate of even mohammed achieved this which is why i remember i think it was probably 15 years ago or maybe more that mohammed was actually classified as the most powerful man in history among the 100 most powerful characters in history you may recall reading that and that was quite surprising to many people why why because what he achieved was this and with this there was this whole world takeover you know nearly got europe but didn't quite but the rest of asia and as we know so my observation was just that that i think uh, now arabs are waning yes and turkey is back to getting its uh, caliphate uh, and it's going to be the 100 year long and uh, but yeah there's no denying the arab violence and the influence of islam in organizing them i think if you just an observation uh, so uh, i'll just uh, add a bit to it uh, so what actually happens is that uh, according to my studies now uh, there was no mohammed bin qasim and this story has also been cooked by abbasids and rather the turks uh, when chanchatama was commissioned so uh, mohammed bin qasim is said to have invaded finally in 712 bd 
the first reference of uh, arabic invasions appears in 895 or 893 by baduri so writing was very much available for every one of them and everyone was writing every kind of stories bishop was capturing so many tales but it took 180 years to talk about the campaign of sin to start off with then that time the mohammed bin qasim has still not been spoken then it was in two years after that one more text came uh, it was again under the uh, abbasid the uh, abbasid reign then a bit detail of biography of bin qasim is introduced a bit detail like two three lines something like that but chachnama is commissioned finally 500 years after it then the whole story of uh, bin qasim has been written that how the 17 year old guy now this guy is supposed to be coming from hizaz makka now we don't have makka in any map till 980 makka is for the first time spoken in 741 ad in uh, in, in a document uh, for the first time it appears there so this whole story or the episode was cooked up to really give a because that was a era of invasions and the more you invade the more powerful you show so all these abbasids and abbasids were a very smart people after the umayyad abbasid scheme so what they used to do that uh, you know uh, like of course they commissioned the quran quran was being written and hadith were being written and interestingly what you observed in hadith is that all the hadith were associated with either the slave family or someone from the slave so hadith were being written as a redemption and why they were being written because a story of a prophet was being created because we don't have any historical evidences for whatsoever if this man existed the way the classical tale tells us this man never that's why i use the word pen uh, pen name muhammad because muhammad also had got various meanings and various things so then the, story, the hadith was also being created and that is why you know the first thing appears at uh, bukhari who wrote the first hadith he was given 7 lakh uh, uh, 6 lakh uh, hadith he rejected 98.2% and wrote only uh, 7000 so our interest should be to know what was on 98.2% what that this man bukhari rejected 200 years after when muhammad would have died so it means that the story now ibn ishaq is one who is said to have written the first biography of muhammad but don't have any record of it but we are told about him from ibn hisham ibn hisham whose book is available which was written in 9th century as well now again 200 years after and all these are happening during the abbasids so i'm just trying to tell that stories was being created by the abbasids and there's a whole record that the more and more wars on which this abbasids used to go the more document uh, the writing used to happen because this writing were like a uh, the tool for them and there's a very interesting anecdote that why hadith is so embarrassing for muhammad because hadith seems to be very embarrassing so there's a thesis uh, on this idea that it was done deliberately to engage the people There's a lot of embarrassment which has been brought to muhammad like you know no one will like to embarrass the apostle of god, uh, god that way so it was also cooked up that way so uh, makka was cooked up uh, the story of uh, the muhammad was cooked up the story of all the conquest was cooked up uh, because this muhammad was uh, also was in the northern part it was not, he was not in the southern part actually as per document the first reference to talk about muhammad appears in 640 ad and that document is kept in british library as a first page in front of a gospel just one page is there it talks about the incidents where in 634 uh, 
the tayayed mohammed the tayayed that means the tayayed belonging to mohammed attack and the tayayed people are living up front so this mohammed is actually belonging there he's not from this part the southern part he's definitely somewhere around iraq or syria or perhaps near the turk or somewhere else. so he has he actually there's a whole arabic book uh, about uh, mohammed is from syria or something i just forgot the name of the book that which and it is arabic book very interestingly it's written in arabic we do have a translated version of it also right now so this whole thesis was completely flawed and put upon us to make us believe that the foundation of islam itself was too strong though we are finding that even this guy uthman the most important caliph is a christian this uh, ibn isham is writing so this whole story is so jumbled up and the way it has been given yes arabs were also marauders no doubts about it but their marauding intensified when they you know got in interaction with the turks because there was a uh, the, the whole uh, this idea of the islam was erupting around 8th and 9th century and it was happening in the northern iraq or somewhere somewhere around that where there's a lot of places where the studies of the old testament and all those things used to happen the turks also used to interact and a lot of things were happening a lot of interaction happened and perhaps that made the situation uh, that bad over there so uh, that's how i think it happened and that's my thesis about it what i found was that the consumption right the consumption of the content that is being generated you spoke about the book being 400 pages and still not complete right today's generation because i've been helping start up a lot of schools uh, for the art of living and uh, you know a lot of you know, identifying how we can communicate the history in the right way to students because that's where the education starts Uh, found that uh, you know you have to give it to them in the way they can consume so is it possible that probably garuda prakashan and the indic academy starts producing smaller and smaller chapters probably and showing the interest and so it continues it's like a serial that you watch on tv that you have only smaller bits and it keeps people engrossed so that they can continue to read it over a period of time instead of reading everything at once because even when you publish a book it's very expensive to publish the book in different languages right but uh, you know i worked in cdac before so we had this translation technique technology to take from english to other languages even with subtitles so if we can do this and allow consumption in smaller and smaller pitches i think people will every day come read it and then you know keep them in so maybe do you think we should think something like that so that uh, we can get more people to consume this information yeah definitely one of uh, the initiative has been taken where uh, uh, alamgiri is being translated and uh, it's being done by sanjay dikshit and uh, he has taken up the project and uh, i think more and more such thing will start happening because uh, right now we have just started to touch the surface i will not even say the scratch we have just touched the surface we have not even scratched the surface so there's a lot to go in and like uh, i said that i don't agree with the narrative itself that bin qasim had invaded india so the and if bin qasim didn't invade india the whole thing is going to change from there you know the history is going to change till the moguls so there's a lot of uh, i see this as a black hole process where when we get in we don't know where we will come out a lot needs to be done and a lot of people need to shift their attention from you know we see that there a lot of people want to criticize 
the faiths and other things, but that is not going to help you at all. The idea is that you need to get into the academy, read the books, translate, debate, discuss. That's the only way out, right? And we have, I do believe that though we have potential, we are losing on this idea to debate, engage, and produce the documents. Rather, I always say we are more activist, less on activity. Activity is very low. Activism Whether you see it on Twitter or Facebook, anywhere. So we will have to reduce it. And perhaps if that happens, something needs to be done. Of course, we at Garuda had a discussion about it. I was something needs to be done. Uh, hoping that in some days something might just turn out. Okay, I'm Gayatri. Uh, we had a wonderful presentation and your research. I feel very thankful for that. But my question is slightly different. I would like to see your research as an architect and urban designer in the field of temple architecture because I personally know that Indian architecture has been rubbish in our academia as we have a seven-course meal of the Greek and Roman architecture. And Indian architecture is really demeaned by calling it a trabate style and not very important, just rock culture. That's the way they are called. So I would like to see you doing some good research on that and the urban planning like you we had temple based uh, cities temple towns so a, a good well planned layout system and we have lots of well organized sort of set that is being completely rubbish so i would like to see you doing some good research on that even i can collaborate thank you so much sure thank you